in the next two Sundays, uh, starting from today, uh, we want to look at one of the most important installments or sacraments, I'm sorry, uh, that Jesus instituted uh, during his last days on this earth. And we are talking about the communion. Amen. Uh, communion has been a hot uh, button topic and in our Christian faith, some are for it, some are against it. But um, in the next two weeks, starting from today, we are going to look at it from a scriptural perspective and draw our conclusions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning as we come before your holy word. We pray that your word will minister to your people in simplicity and in clarity of speech, yet in the power and in the fullness of your spirit. I thank you that your word will be a blessing to your people. I pray that may we gain insights, may we gain understanding into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The Holy Communion is a meal of significance. It's popularly known as the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Why so? Because they had it during the evening. So, and the, the, um, the person in mind or the person associated with that was the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about him spending time with his disciples uh, less than 24 hours to his crucifixion. And they broke bread and they ate together. And sometimes it's even used as a metaphor. Yeah, so that's where we draw the, the term, the Lord's Supper. Uh, throughout the Bibles, meals were not a phenomena, uh, especially for the Israelites, because the children of Israel had feasts that they celebrated annually, known as festivals, and there were seven of them. One of the popular ones is known as the Passover. Um, so each festival held a very sp spiritual input, uh, lesson, or significance to the children of Israel. So a festival normally involves around celebration, um, understanding the purpose or the theme for the festival, and then also meals and drinks. That was common practice among the Jewish people. Amen. But today, uh, before we go into the New Testament to find out how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it's very impudent on our part and also as students of the Bible to trace the origin of the Lord's Supper. One thing that you have to understand is that anything that you see in the New Testament has its origins from the Old Testament. If it doesn't have an origin from the Old Testament, it's not a valid doctrine. The Bible is interwoven. Amen. Even for Paul to preach grace, all his points were buttressed strongly from the Old Testament because if it was just a revelation on its own and it had no standing in the Old Testament, it would have not been valid. So... It's very important to trace the origin of how the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion, as we call in our circles today, originated. So turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. 
verses 1 to 14, and then we will jump from verse 14 to 17. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, and then we jump to 17. Now, this was the first meal that the Lord instructed the Israelites to have. And it was for a reason and under a circumstance. And this scripture is going to throw light on that. So I read. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. Excuse me. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. For you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. And against all the gods of the Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's verse 13. So this is where the, the name Passover comes from. The name Passover means that there was going to be death in the land of Egypt. And per the instructions and directives, if the blood of the lamp was on your doorpost or on the lintels of your post, the Bible says that when the angel of death comes to strike the land of Egypt and when he sees blood, he will pass over. So that's where the festival or the meal Passover actually came from. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast 
by an everlasting ordinance. Now, the reason why I skipped from I skipped verses 15 and 16 is that now that this is going to transition from a meal to now a festival. So when you read verses 15 to 16, it now talks about this, that it's not just going to be a solo event. It's going to be a festival. It's going to be something that you do. It's going to take seven days of the week to do that. And when that happens, now we, we, it, it should be proper and formal. You will have to eat unleavened bread. And when we talk about unleavened bread, it simply means that bread without yeast. So don't put yeast in the bread. So when you don't put yeast in the bread or in flour, and when you bake it, the bread becomes flat. Eat it flat. There is a spiritual significance for that. Amen. So now, verses 15 to 16 now makes us see the transition from the Passover becoming a meal to now becoming a festival that will be celebrated on the calendar of the Jews annually. Until this day, the Jews still practice Passover. When it's Easter season, it's their Passover season. Amen. Now, verse 17. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Amen. So like when you read the Bible, you will see the progression of the Passover moving from a meal to a festival. And like we all saw in the scripture, it was known as the festival of unleavened bread. And the Lord instituted this as a festival because he said, by the time you start celebrating the festival, I would have brought you guys out of the captivity of Egypt. So first and foremost, what made the Lord decide to institute a meal? Moses was sent to Egypt by God, that the cry of my people who have been burdened through slavery has reached my ears. Go and deliver them. That's a task that God gave to Moses. And then the Bible lets us know that Moses went with Aaron, who was his spokesman, who later on became the first priest. And the Bible lets us know that God did miracles through Moses' hands. And, and the Lord released ten plagues Ten plagues that the Bible lets us know that the heart of Pharaoh became hardened the more, decided that he was not going to let the people go. So the, the last sign that the Lord did was that I'm going to institute a meal called the Passover. And the reason why I'm going to institute a meal called the Passover is that I'm going to bring judgment upon the enemies of Israel for deciding to keep you into captivity and also, for not heeding to the voice of God. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer, God is not going to see to it that you will perpetually be in bondage, perpetually suffer, perpetually be under captivity. It's not the will of the Lord. The Lord's mind was upon the people of Israel. He wanted to know that I really cared about them. So he said that we are going to institute something called a meal. It's going to be a Passover meal. And we looked at the instructions that God gave, that they should take a lamp, you know. And if, if you do remember our Bible study, the series on redemption, we have established the fact that Jesus is the lamp of God. You do take a lamp, 
uh, you roast it, you eat it, but you drain the blood, and you are going to use the blood on the lentils of your post and on your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes, when he sees a blood upon your doorpost, he will pass over. Well, if you read further on, scripture was fulfilled. The Bible lets us know that the angel of death raced through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn of every Egyptian, starting from Pharaoh to even animals. It got so serious that animals were not even spared. Animals that the firstborn of every animal died, and that was judgment. And, and the Bible lets us know that by this, Pharaoh now loosened his grip, and he told the people that you can now leave and go and worship God. But God was saying that this is not just going to be a one-time event. It's going to progress from becoming a meal to now becoming a festival that you will celebrate every year. And why is it necessary for you to celebrate this festival? It will be necessary for you to celebrate this festival to commemorate my deliverance of the chosen people out of the land of Egypt. Amen. So that was what the Passover was for. And why did the Lord deliver the people of Israel? He delivered the people of Israel because of his promise that he made to Abraham. So whenever the people celebrated the Passover, they always remembered three things. They remembered that God is a God of covenants. Because Psalm 105 verse 42, the Bible lets us know that, and he remembered his promise. His holy promise that he made to Abraham. That was the only reason why the Israelites warranted deliverance. The Israelites did not warrant deliverance because they were Christians. Mind you, at the time when they were being delivered from the captivity of Egypt, they were idol worshippers. They all subscribed to the religion of the Egyptians. And that was they worshipped idols. So God did not deliver the people because they were good or they warranted deliverance. He delivered them because of his promise. When God makes an oath, he will not turn back. That's why the Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie. You see, Moses had a personal experience of God not turning back away from his promise. That's why he could boldly say that God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, he will do it. And has he spoken it? he will make good his promise. So the Bible lets us know that he delivered the Israelites because he remembered his holy covenant or his promise to Moses. That was the only reason why they warranted God's deliverance. So whenever the Israelites now celebrated the Passover, which now became a festival, they were saying three things. They were saying that God is a God of covenants. And today, if you are listening to me, I want you to know that God is a God of covenants. Whatever God has said by his word is a covenant. That's the essence of a covenant. Whatever God has said by his word is a covenant. Whenever you read the Bible, whatever promise that you see in the Bible is a covenant. God is a God of covenants. The second thing that you have to know is that God is a covenant-keeping God. So when the Israelites celebrated the Passover, it's really brought them back to memory to remember that our predecessors were in captivity for over 400 years, but they were delivered supernaturally out of the hand of the Egyptians because God is a covenant-keeping God. He's not just a God of covenants, 
but he's a covenant-keeping God. And the third thing that the Israelites remembered when they celebrated this festival was that God remembers and keeps his promise. And the fact that the word remembers is, is being used doesn't mean God forgets. He never forgets. God keeps his promise. So God is a God of covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. And God remembers and keeps his promise. And therefore, may I say to you this morning that I don't know what promise that you may have had from the Lord. I don't know what you're expecting God to do, but I want to also leave you with these three truths. That God is a God of covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. He doesn't break his covenant because it's just him. He just can't do it. It's impossible for him to do it. God and his word are one. He's as good as his word. And the Bible lets us know that God remembers and keeps his promise. Over 400 years, God didn't forget the promise he made to Abraham. And when he made this promise to Abraham, Israel was not yet born. It was an unborn generation. So therefore, whatever promise that God had for you before you even became a clot of blood in your mother's womb, I'm here to encourage you that God remembers covenants, God remembers promises, and God will make sure and keep to his promise because he is God. So this was the reason why the Passover was celebrated. It was a meal that when the people partook of the meal, the Bible lets us know that the angel of death that came as a result of God's judgment over the land of Egypt passed over the Israelites. So none of their people died. None of their children died. None of their cattle, stock, or animals, or whatever they may have had, did not die, except only the Egyptians, because the blood was not on their doorposts. And now it moved from that to a festival where they will remember the kindness of God towards them. That in the midst of hard captivity, in the midst of harshness, the Lord delivered them. Now, with that said, let's now see the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, institutes what we now call the communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, it's important for us to note that this event is recorded in three out of the Gospels. When we talk about the Gospels, we are talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John actually recorded what happened before the communion and after the communion, but he did not really focus on the main events. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke do focus on that. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 to 30, it talks about the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 to 26, also talks about that. And Luke chapter 22, verse 7 to 30, also talks about that. Amen. And what you also have to understand that Jesus instituted this when he was anticipating death. He didn't do this because he felt like having merrymaking. He did this at the anticipation of death. Just put yourself in that shoes. Well, nobody likes to put yourself in that shoes when it comes to death. Let me just do another example. If I knew I had just less than 24 hours to die, the last thing that will be on my mind will be having a meal with my friends. 
And basically, that's what Jesus did. Or observing a festival. But Jesus had to do that. And in one of those, those recorded stories, like I talk about in Luke 22, where the communion is recorded, in verse 15, Jesus says that, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And why did Jesus want to eat this Passover with them? He wanted to eat this Passover with them because he was going to do something that was going to change the face of the church forever. Amen. So now, for the purpose of today's sermon, I just want us to consider Matthew's account. So let's go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 to 30. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 to 30. Now look at it. It says, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover. And when was Passover institutionalized? Exodus chapter 12. Do you all remember that? It's called the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And why is it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Because you are not supposed to add yeast to the flour. But the bread, when you bake the, fl- when you bake the flour, the bread has to become flat. That's what is called unleavened bread. Amen. The disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? This man has less than 24 hours, and yet his disciples wanted to observe the Passover feast. And Jesus didn't have a problem with it. I would have had a problem with it. I, I would probably be nowhere to be seen. If I know I have less than 24 hours, the last thing I want to do is to observe some ceremony. Maybe an Easter ceremony, maybe July 4th, maybe Christmas. Some, I, I don't think I will even be out of coverage area. You will not find me anywhere. If I have less than 12 hours to die, I, I think I might be doing something more. Probably I might even be praying. I might be praying that, Lord, can you avert this death? I don't want to die. I might probably be seriously praying. Or maybe I might have come to that realization to accept that this is my fate. And I might even be living in trembling fear. But Jesus Christ, knowing that he had less than 24 hours, look at the answer he gave to them. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. You see, the disciples believed that one day Jesus was going to die. I think they had all come to that realization. But they didn't know that it was less than 24 hours. That they didn't know. And that Jesus kept away from them. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. That's quite interesting. Jesus really concealed 
the identity of the betrayer. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if the disciples knew that Judas was the one who was going to betray Christ, they would have killed him straight on the spot. Because these apostles, they were very ragged and they were some very violent and hardcore people. They were walking with Jesus, but Jesus had not yet walked through them. And, and, and during the time when Jesus was crucified, during that three-day space when he wasn't with them, it revealed the depth of their Christian experience. Even though they walked with Jesus, Jesus had not yet walked through them for them to have the Christ-like character being fashioned and molded in them. So these people, had they known, they, they, would, have crucified, they would have crucified Judas. And if Judas would have been crucified... It, it, it would have derailed and delayed the purpose for which Christ came. That was to die for our sins. So Jesus said that the one who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. But the funny thing was that all the disciples were going to dip their hand with Christ in the dish. So that even makes it more puzzling. So who is the one that is really going to betray Nobody. Because everybody will dip their hands with Christ in the dish and eat the meal. And yet Christ says that the one who dips them. So he made it so generic that the, the, the identity of the betrayer will be concealed. Now let's read on. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man, if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many of the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Before we go into the text, when I read verse 27, it really jumped at me. Drink from it, all of you. Communion is not a time of exclusion. Communion is not a time to divide people, segregate people. Communion is a time of inclusion. Jesus looked at all the people, including the betrayer, the one who was going to betray him, and he said, drink of it, all of you. So we don't separate people, we don't exclude people during communion. That is not scriptural based on this. And we are talking about the master who instituted this meal. So if the master who instituted the meal, who is the founder of this sacrament, didn't alienate or didn't exclude people from partaking of the table, we who are his servants and we who call himself his children should not alienate or exclude anybody from partaking of the Lord's table. The only people who, by scripture, 
who are not allowed to take communion are those who have not received Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. And we will go into that next week. But aside that, if the person has received Christ as his Lord and personal Savior, everybody qualifies to partake of communion. It's not about how holy you are or how sinful you are. In some churches, there are some people who feel unworthy to partake of the communion. And when you come to a place where you have a sense of unworthiness to partake of the communion, it's bad teaching. Because Jesus didn't exclude anybody. He could have excluded Peter because Peter would have denied him thrice. He could have excluded Thomas because Thomas doubted. He could have excluded Judas because he was the one that betrayed them with a kiss. But he says, drink of it, all of you. Communion is not a time of exclusion, but it's a time of inclusion. Amen. Now, right here, we see that the Lord's Supper was instituted on the, day of, on the first day of Passover. Now, the Passover, like I said, it wasn't just a meal anymore. Now, it had become a festival that took place over a period of days. And all these people were Jewish. So all of them understood the significance of Passover. That's why they asked Jesus, where should we celebrate Passover? But in the midst of eating, because during Passover, like I said, it was a time of celebration, meals are, are eaten, there's, there are drinks, and so on. And, and whilst we are doing this too, you, you sort of and you sort of understand the theme of the festival. That's very important. But whilst they were eating, Jesus decided to institute something called the Lord's Communion or the Holy Communion. And Jesus gave a new meaning to what it means to eat bread and then have a drink. Because during those times when the people were just eating. And then they were having drinks. They were just doing it, just like, Lord, thank you that you delivered our predecessors from the hand of Pharaoh out of the land of Egypt. You delivered them out of captivity. That was all the average Jewish person knew about observing the Passover. But now, when they took the bread to eat, Jesus said, this bread that you are taking now is going to represent my body. And why? Because Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 to 10. Last week, we did read 39 verses. We read 39 verses, I'm sorry, of Hebrews chapter 10. And in verses 5 to 10 of that chapter, the Bible lets us know that Jesus had a body prepared for him. And it was this body that he offered for the sins of the world. And it was through the offering of his body that we have all been sanctified. And the Bible lets us know that it had to happen because he had to take away the first that he will establish the second. What was the first year? The first was the old covenant of the law. That had to be taken away for the new covenant of grace to be established, which is known as the second it's talking about the body that was going to be shed. It's talking about the body that was going to be sacrificed on the cross. That body represented the lamb. John called Jesus the lamp of God that took away the sins of this world. 
that body was going to become that lamb. And that body was now going to be used as an offering to pay for the sins of the world. And the beautiful thing was that this offering came to end the reign of the offerings of bulls, goats, cows, and the like. And the Bible lets us know that out of Jesus' sacrifice, we have experienced perfect redemption. And what does it mean to have perfect redemption? It means our redemption is complete. It's complete to the place that now if you offer bulls and goats, it has no power because something has been done in place of that. So Jesus Christ was saying that now when you take of the bread, this is going to signify the body. That sacrificial body that was laid for your sins. And then he looked at the wine that they were drinking. He said, now this wine is going to represent my blood. And it is through this blood that we have experienced the remission of sins. And the word remission is very important. You know, because the word remission was an everyday use, you know. It's not really um, um, a new word. You know, during those times, you could use remission during tax. That's to relinquish a claim. Remission can also be used in transfer. You know, like, you know, even in this world, we have what we call remittance services. That's to send money. It's remittance. So it's used in tax and finances. It was also used in medicine. You know, sometimes when they say that something like cancer is gone into remission, it's talking about abatement. So remission is not really a Bible word per se. It was an everyday word. But Jesus was using remission in this context, saying that our sins will be forgiven. Not just that, but also the penalty for the crime will also be cancelled. So when we talk about the remission of sins, Jesus is saying that whenever now you take wine to drink, remember, it is for your sakes. Your sins are forgiven, and then the penalty for the crime has been cancelled. So when, when, when Jesus lifted up these elements, which now institutionalized the Lord's Supper, which is now the Holy Communion, he was talking about memoriam of his death and the benefits of his death. When we take of the bread, the bread signifies to us that all sacrifices have come to an end because Christ laid his body as the perfect sacrifice that granted us perfect redemption. And if we have been perfectly redeemed, it means we have been delivered from the power, the presence, and the person of sin. We are no longer under the influence of sin. When we take the blood and when we, when we take the wine, which represents the blood, it means to us that Christ has forgiven us of our sins. And not just that, but the penalty for our sins, the crime, the, the penalty that we had to pay for the crime, it has been canceled. Therefore, we can walk free, we can not, not feeling guilty, and we can also walk not feeling condemned because of Christ's blood. And that was necessary for Christ to institutionalize that. And then when you read Luke chapter 22, verse 19, like I said, this story is also recorded in Luke 22. Jesus instructed 
the disciples that you have to do this in remembrance of me. So in the midst of the disciples celebrating Passover, Jesus institutionalized what was called the Lord's Supper. So you are not just to celebrate Passover as Jewish people, but you are also to celebrate what is called the Lord's Supper. It's going to be in my memoriam. And why? Because of the sacrifice that it took for you to be free. Because of the sacrifice that it took for, for, for me to make sure that you people will become beneficiaries of the new covenant. So, another meal was incepted during the observation of the Passover. So, one of the beautiful things that Jesus also said about this is in verse 29. So, we take communion to remind ourselves of the death of Christ. There are some believers, the only time they remember the death of Christ is Easter. But communion should always serve as a fresh reminder of the death of Christ. Why? Because it is through his death that we have been liberated and delivered from the power of sin. It's through his death that we have experienced the forgiveness of sins and the cancellation of the penalty of our sins. That needs to be at the forefront of our memory. It doesn't have to be on a particular Sunday, a random Sunday in April, or the last Sunday of March. We must always remember that because when we remember that, it affects how we live in this Christian work of faith for God. But I like what communion also does. Verse 29 of Matthew chapter 26 that we just read. Let us know that communion is dress rehearsal. Jesus says that when I take this, I'm not going to take it again. I will drink it anew in the kingdom to come. So whenever we practice this sacrament, it's dress rehearsal. Because one day we are going to wine and we are going to sup with Christ in the hereafter. So Jesus hereby has explained the symbolism of the communion elements and he's saying that we should do it in his memory. We should do it in remembrance of him. We should do it in his honor. Now, apart from the disciples who observed this less than 24 hours before Christ's death, did the New Testament church partake of the communion? That is something that we are going to go into next week. So we have come to understand the inception of the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion during a festival called the Passover. Why the significance? To remind us of Christ's death. His death puts an end to all sacrifices because we have experienced perfect redemption. His death made sure that we have experienced the forgiveness of sins and the cancellation of the penalty for our crime, which is called remission of sins. And that is the reason why we do communion. So wherever we are taking communion, we are not just following a church tradition. It is not a Catholic thing. It's a Christ-like thing that was institutionalized less than 24 hours before his death. And that's the reason why every first Sunday of the month, 
ICC as a church, we partake of communion. Why? Because we want to put in remembrance his death. It's because of his death. That's why I'm a partaker of the new covenant. And I'm a beneficiary of all the promises that the new covenant has for me. It's because of his death. That is why I've experienced perfect redemption, which is complete. My, my redemption has been completed. My redemption has been paid for. Why? Because Jesus Christ gave his body, which was the perfect offering for our sins. So whenever we take up the communion, remind yourselves that your sins are forgiven, your sins are paid for, and you have every right to walk free of guilt, free of condemnation, free of shame. But you can't take communion until you have first and foremost received Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May we take communion now with meaning. But above all, Lord, may we take of you who is the living bread of life that gives eternal life. That when we take of communion, it will really make sense to us. Thank you for shining lights on your holy sacraments which is the Holy Communion. I thank you that from now on, we will eat and drink of it, not devoid of understanding. And Father, as we put this in remembrance, may we always remember that our sins are forgiven. May we always remember that our redemption is paid for. May we always remember that we have experienced the remission of sins, which has to do with the forgiveness of our sins, and the cancellation of the penalty for our crime. We thank you that we walk free. We walk absolved of every guilt, every shame, every condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.